From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Thank you. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. We sift through as much recorded material as we can find, whether it be on the air, the internet, at an audio festival, or even a friend of a friend's mother's, uncle's, hairdresser's, cousin's, nephew's opus they put together in a studio in the garage. We take the best and most interesting of what we find, and we play it for you each week on ReSound. Police officers, you're under arrest. Now get those hands behind your head. Move! Okay, out in the other room. Move! Turn on the TV any time of the day or night, 3 a.m., 11 a.m., 4 p.m., or midnight, and you can always find a rerun of Law & Order, or Law & Order SVU, or CSI, and that's CSI Miami, New York, Hoboken, what have you. And if not that, then Missing, Homicide, Cold Case, The Wire. Obviously, our fascination with crime is endless and our appetite insatiable. But of course, it's easy to enjoy even a brutal crime story when it's neatly wrapped up in an hour and solved by hottie detectives. Court dates are remarkably timely, DNA tests only take as long as one commercial break, and the bad guys actually wind up in jail. In real life, that's not always the case. Coming up, true crimes, true detectives, amateur sleuths, and not even one reading of the Miranda rights. Promise. Molly, put that gun away. Why should I? Peter is dead. Put it away. I told you no violence. I don't like the sight of blood. Any further? Unfinished business doesn't sit well in the human brain. We like closure. We like to know where we stand at the end of the day. But needless to say, that isn't always possible. Crimes go unsolved. Mysteries stay unknowable. But this kind of unfinished criminal business, cold cases abandoned by even the professional detectives, just fed the flames of determination for a group of amateur detectives that producer Sarah Parker calls the Internet Sleuths. Okay, I got an email from a gentleman in New York. His daughter has been missing for 30 years. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Todd Matthews. Using the Internet, I try to match the missing with the unidentified. Now, this is a good one. This is the L.A. County coroner. And they have the disclaimer, some of the photos and information in this section may be disturbing to some viewers. This is just exactly like if you walked into a morgue and they pulled out the drawer and threw back the sheet to let you look at a body. That's exactly what you're going to see on the website. Can you imagine standing where they pulled back the sheet on your child? Well, this is what they're getting. They're just getting it through the Internet. I'm John York. I'm the sheriff of Livingston County, New York. We're upstate. We're about 300 miles north of New York City and 70 miles east of Buffalo and Niagara Falls, New York. It's very unfortunate that in this particular case that we're talking about on November 9th in 1979, 
We had a young girl. She was shot once over the right eye, dragged into a cornfield, shot through the back, stripped of identification, and 27 years later, we're still trying to identify who this child is. She's somebody's child, and somebody has a right to know what happened to her, and she has a right to the justice of identifying her killers. Over 100,000 missing persons in the United States alone and then globally. You know, think of the anguish of all these parents and all of these siblings and people that love these people. And, you know, I think it's sort of like a quiet tragedy. 9-11 was huge. You know, a lot of people died at the same time. But there was far more missing than ever died there. And there are officially listed over 6,000 unidentified bodies. And that's listed with the FBI. But we know that that's only 10 or 50% of the actual numbers. There are groups that have done studies, and we're confident that there are probably forty to 50,000 of them in the United States alone. We're actually leaving Geneseo, and we're en route back to Route 5 in the town of Caledonia, which is about 25 miles uh, from the office, and we're actually going to the scene of where Jane Doe was actually found. I've always been perplexed and amazed that somebody can kill somebody, dump them, drive on, and kill somebody else with no remorse. We have done everything humanly possible. We've done run down over 10,000 leads on this case. The Doe Network is a group of volunteers that have come together to try to pull together the world of the missing and the world of the unidentified, hopefully to match a few up and put them back to where they belong. Doe Network, because of the, you know, the moniker that the unidentified bodies have, are John and Jane Doe. We've helped identify more than 30. 30 bodies, we've actually been able to match them with the missing person. To me, in a way, that seems like a low number, thinking of the hours that we put in on it. But a lot of times we've taken a case that's out of the basement, all but forgotten, and have brought it back to the surface and actually have a police report filed so that it's, again, an active case. I think the internet is one of the main potential for resolve of the whole case because you can get to such a large targeted audience and more and more people become interested in difficult crime cases. It's nice to know you're making a difference. There are two families at least I've helped and that makes me feel great just to bring her home and give her a proper Christian burial that she deserves. 69 missing East Side women, women who were drug addicted and involved in prostitution. The reports weren't taken seriously. The internet is the greatest tool, <laughs> simply because you can get so much information to so many people so quickly. I want to say welcome to all of our listeners out there this Tuesday evening. You've joined us for yet another episode of Missing Pieces, hosted by Todd Matthews and myself, Eric Meadows. And I want to welcome everybody to the station tonight. How is everyone? I'm good. I'm good, too. Great, great. Todd, you have a guest with you tonight, don't you? Yes, Miss Tracy Flasher, an old friend of mine. She's with New York Missing, NY Missing, and the Center for Hope. And I'm hoping she'll tell us a little bit about that. Welcome, Tracy. Now, was it, it was on the Cold Cases Discussion Group, and you were, what brought you into this world? 
I was actually researching on a cousin that our family had lost contact with. And uh, I found an unidentified woman that actually fit her description. It turned out not to be her, but that's how I sort of got drawn into it. Leaving Route 5, entering Route 20, and where she was shot and dumped roadside is right about 500 yards down the road here. It actually is open field right now. It's been plowed up. A lot of the corn has been turned up, but where we're going to stop here is exactly uh, the area that was all full of high corn at the time, and it was where there was a small uh, roadside pull-off here uh, where this tree is on the right. Let's go over. I want to find answers. This is someone's daughter, and they deserve to know what happened to her. She's a teenager. She looks like the girl next door. No one has a clue who she is still. She's kind of like internet folklore when it comes to <laughs> this type of thing because she is one of the oldest cases. It's sort of become, that's my, my case that I sort of obsess about. As we arrived to the scene here and we went out into the field, there's now snow on the ground in November. There was not. It was a very cold, dreary day. It had rained for about 11 hours prior to finding her here. It obliterated almost any physical evidence. We re-dug up the ground where she was laying and uh, we checked every inch of this area and we recovered any physical evidence we could and part of that is still part of the case. And we actually recovered the spent bullet that had uh, gone through her body and uh, we were able to do ballistics analysis on the bullets. You know, a lot of people will say it's an amateur detective, amateur sleuth. But, you know, after 20 years of working on something like this, uh, you would think that there has to be a profession because people are coming to me. They're coming to people like me for help. The man who first found her, who owns this land, still owns it and still is a very active farmer in the community. Well, they planted corn in it long before and they still plant corn now and I'm sure they'll plant corn long after. I mean, this all started for me back in 1987 when I met my future wife, Lori. They came here from northern Kentucky, you know, to my school. You know, she just appeared in a cafeteria one day and I remember seeing her across the room and she just caught my eye instantly. I really wanted to talk to that girl, so I think I'd already fallen in love with Lori. I was 16 years old when I met Todd. He spends all of his spare time doing this, and it does get completely overwhelming. He spends every waking hour. It's his life. Lori mentioned Tent Girl. She was called the Tent Girl because she was found wrapped in a canvas tent tube, tent, and I think that's what gave her an identity without an identity. She said, my dad, he actually found the body of the Tent Girl. He was about to start a job. He's a well driller, and he saw something in a wrapper, a canvas wrapper, and he thought maybe it's an animal. He didn't know. He kicked it with his foot, rolled in the hill, and he saw it had a human form. He actually went down and stuck his knife into the bag, and the odor that came out of it was overwhelming. She had been murdered through blunt force trauma to the skull and put inside this canvas tent tube, but I wonder, 
after all this time, you know, could she have still been alive because her fingernails were broken off? And, you know, I wonder if she tried to scratch her way out of that bag. Todd was determined that he was going to find who she was. We went to libraries. We spent every weekend going through newspaper articles and trying to get everything we could get. And this was before the Internet. And when he got the Internet, there was no stopping him. A lot of us feel that we're advocates for the dead. You know, the missing usually have the family that's actually advocating for the missing. I am Rosemary Westbrook, my sister. She was missing. I thought maybe she found another family. You know, as when you're 10 years old, you can imagine anything. I really, really didn't start taking it to heart until I had my own son. Or what if something happened to Brian, my son? You know, what would I do? How far would I go to try to find him? You know, and I thought, you know, if I'm that determined with my own child, I should be that determined with my sister. You know, 10 years ago, before they invented the Internet, the world didn't exist beyond the community in which I grew up, beyond the rim of the mountains. Outside of television, you know, there was no knowledge of the outside world, really. This was just a very isolated area. I think that was why the tent girl was taken into the heart of the community. So in 1995, the one reason why my husband let me get on the Internet was so that I could look and see. You know, it was like, I don't know if you all remember the song, You Can Find Anything You Want at Alice's Restaurant. Well, getting on the Internet was kind of like that. You could find anything. You could look anywhere in the world. So back then I had a very small computer, very slow. Um, I started going to missing persons message boards where you could post a missing person. There was message boards, you know, where people would sell things, you know, just lost and found. And then people started looking for their missing brothers or sisters. I thought, well, I'll post about the tent girls. So I created a website. And then in January of 1998, I saw a message that said, Sister Missing, from last seen in the Lexington area, December of 1967. And then there was a description. So I emailed Rosemary. So I called him, and uh, he says, I think I know where your sister is. And I said, you're the first person that's ever, 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 ever told me this. And he asked me some questions. He said, my father-in-law found a body in 1968. And he says, this might be your sister. He said, I don't want your money. I'm not an investigator. He said, I just want you to call Scott County Sheriff's Office and tell them that you want to talk to them about the tent girl. I'm Sheriff Bobby Hammond, Scott County, Kentucky. You get a lot of calls in this business on tips and things, and normally we check them all out. But uh, this one, a 30-year-old body laying up here, no one knew, and uh, he's been on the Internet and thinking he's come up with something. It was a cold case. I mean, it's still an open murder case right today. He gave me a website to go and look at, and when I read what was on the tombstone, like I was looking in a mirror, is what it looked like. I remember she had long brown hair. She always had real pretty nails. She always was smiling. You know, she'd take me to get ice creams. I remember kid things, picnics, and her coming to spend the night, and us dancing on the front porch to a little Panasonic record player with a 45 going around. On Broadway. Something about um, when the lights are bright on Broadway. I can't even remember the words of it now. 
I remember the red painted front porch and we had a, a squiggly sidewalk and daddy always planted white mums up and down the sidewalk and the front porch was painted red. And I remember her and I, you know, you look up to your big sister and you're just standing there, just both of you holding hands, you know, just dancing, pulling back and forth. And I remember that. And it's just, that's all I've got. I sent pictures of her and they sent them to the medical examiner's office. And there was enough evidence that they exhumed her. Well, you talk about something that's tough, wondering, oh my God, what if that's not her? I've disturbed the dead. You know, I've disturbed something that God should have planted and left right there. We dug the grave up until we hit white plastic, and when it touched it, why well, they quit digging, and Dr. Craig was, so she gets down in there and digs the rest of it by hand. My name is Emily Craig, and I am the Kentucky State Forensic Anthropologist. Basically, I'm responsible for decomposed bodies, unassociated body parts, charred and skeletal remains that are found anywhere in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We had a photograph of the smiling victim, and we also had a photograph of the teeth at autopsy, and they were an identical match, but that still wasn't quite enough. So we did the exhumation, and we got DNA from a sister of the victim, and that gave us the positive ID that we needed from DNA. So it was snowing that afternoon. It, it really, it was a nice day, and then all of a sudden it just started Clouding up, started snowing, and it was real cold. And she was standing there, and she found a hip bone, and it had little grooves in the joint. And she said, you see these grooves? When they get uh, 21, 22 years old, they start filling in, and these had already started filling in. She said, I'm going to say this body's uh, 23 to 25 years old. There's an etching of the tent girl there. It's etched into the stone, and it's not meant to be a portrait. It is a representation, and it's taken from the autopsy. Looking at her, I could say that I'm looking at Rosemary on that stone. It's just like her, I think, now that I know. Now that I know. That's my sister. It says Bobby and... What is it? it says Bobby. That was her nickname. They called yeah. Barbara Bobby. Barbara, Barbara Ann Hackman. Hackman. September 12, 1943, to December 6, 1967. This is the first time we've been here together in 10 years, so it's kind of... It brings back a lot of memories. I I go here by myself a lot, just, you know, alone, but now here with her, it's a little different. It is. It's going to be a little different. It's a good thing you don't Mm -hmm. talk, you know. Well, there's the pool. The pool was here. Kids played in the pool. And a lot of times they could see the grave from it. And I think that's what made her uh, not so scary to a lot of kids because she was uh, here and she wasn't forgotten. I'm glad she was buried close to where children play. <sighs> Took a real pretty picture last time I was up here. It snowed. I've got that picture on my laptop. <laughs> I tried to start and pull the weeds. I think these people that handle these websites, especially those from the missing, and the volunteers that try to match both sides of the equation are 
absolutely amazing. They have done more than government agencies have over the decades. I think it's a common condition that government agencies and medical examiner's offices are just absolutely overwhelmed. And these cold cases, once they go cold, need something to keep them alive. My name is Investigator Gloria Coppola. I'm um, in the Bureau of Criminal Investigation with New York State Police. Most of our cases are homicides, and then in between any current cases, we will work cold cases. And every so often, I would do these searches on unidentifieds, living and deceased. Everybody has computers. Everybody's on the Internet. And one of my missing person cases, a young man who went missing from Albany County. I got a crime tip from someone who was looking at some of the websites, and they found an unidentified. The photos were almost identical. The teeth were similar. We actually had to compare the fingerprints, and it turned out it was not a match. That's how close it was. There is a protocol to know network. It is required to have a police report filed before we'll even touch it. And, you know, you should never publish anything without the permission of law enforcement, without their knowledge, because, you know, it could jeopardize the case. So in your attempt to help a case, you could actually destroy something because you might be following a tip that the sheriff knows well already, but he's been silent and he's waiting for an opportunity. I don't have the time to be cruising databases all day. I can do the federal and state ones, do ad hocing search, which is, you know, me putting in physical characteristics for anybody who might have an unidentified. I can do those searches, but I'm not always on the Doe Network. I will use it. I think it's invaluable. But I love it when we get these crime tips from people. I think it's great. I mean, there's obviously downsides to some of it. You have very overzealous people that have these... uh wild fantasies and they're fascinated with serial killers. I'm probably the most suspicious person out there and uh, you know it's it's my life for 27 years you know is this person lying are they telling the truth however it's not like we get thousands of hits every day and yes it could waste your time if it's something that's just so far out there but after a while you get to know is this worth following up on is this not and let me tell you as a case becomes cold or you know long term After a while, that may be the most current lead you have, and so you may want to look and see what they're offering. As far as the Doe Network is concerned, we try to use our regional people in the particular states where they're posted. You try to use their relationship that they're building with law enforcement, and it's not always easy to find that person to put there to actually do that and actually follow the rules. Tonight we have Jill Bennett. Jill has been into a little bit of everything in the missing persons category. She's been a friend for a long time. She's a little more southern than I am, I think. She's in Georgia. So uh, tell us what you do, Jill. Basically, whenever I get online every day, I'm doing something that pertains to somebody that is missing or murdered because that is my main focus. My screensaver is a collage of faces of missing and murdered people because these faces are just a part of my everyday life. 2002, I started working with the Carrie Culberson case. Her case was my first. She disappeared on August 28, 1996. The boyfriend is serving life without parole. It's kind of controversial because of the fact there was a conviction without the body. We have never wanted anything except just to bring her home and give her a proper Christian burial that she deserves. It's addictive, you know, because you're sitting here and you think, 
I'm going to quit and go to bed. And then you say 30 minutes has passed, and then another 40 minutes has passed. And then, you know, you get the final call from your wife, it's time to go to bed. And, you know, I get up at 3.30 in the morning, and sometimes you're here past 12 o'clock at night. You can't stop because there's no real place to stop because the emails are still coming. I think it's important to caution the amateur sleuths to the fact that they are amateurs. And sometimes they'll want to push the investigators in a direction that we know we just can't go. We can accept the information and the tips from the amateurs, but we simply can't reciprocate and give them information about the investigation. With Leoma Patterson. Now that case is an interesting case. You know, she's been missing since the late 70s and uh, her family were given a body. They didn't feel like the body was hers. The clothing didn't match. The jewelry, they didn't feel like was her jewelry. I am Barbara Atkins. I'm her sister, Pearl. It happened back in 1978. She got missing. My mother, Leoma Patterson. People like me are untie the knots and then take it back to law enforcement, take away all the discrepancies and that type of thing. So that's the way I approached this case. We had to look at, okay, what do we know and what do we not know? We reported her missing and they told the family to look for her, so... We got out in the snow and the ice, and we looked for her herself. Three months after she got missing, the skull, you know, the head, head part, and a few bones, that's all they said they found. See, they released these remains to the family. They held it seven years, and they released it to the family on a boy's confession of killing her. Uh, well, he's in prison right now in the state of Georgia. He committed two more murders there. Ever since then, we've been trying to find out the truth. And as far as getting anything done, I wrote letters to everybody in the country because none of us had any money, you know, to do anything with. I wrote to the governor. I wrote to the state's attorney here. I even wrote a letter to the president. <laughs> And we kind of put our money back through the years, and me and my sister and my brother Ronnie Patterson, we saved our money and we hired a lawyer. We got it exhumed, the remains. We never really thought that it was her, but see, back then they didn't have the DNA. At this point in time, it appears that this body that they've had buried in their mother's grave is not their mother, according to the initial DNA test. Even though the state of the remains often causes a little controversy in the validity of a DNA test. Now so many people expect you to just reach into the internet and pull out the answer to their problems. And you can't. It's not that easy. You know, it didn't happen. It wasn't like a, I just looked up tent girl and out popped Barbara Hackman Taylor. So you, you can't just catalog through it and just pull it out like a barcode. It's not like that. Even with the Internet, even though it was the tool, it still took a lot of work to use that tool to find what we were looking for. We hope we can get this person identified and maybe somebody come forth that sees all this, you know, in the media and stuff that, you know, they might be able to come and tell us something about our mother. She'd be 82 if she were alive. I want to know what happened to her and where she's at and who 
we buried because whoever was in that grave's got a family too. There's a lot of people that's on the cold cases group that are people that are actually really working in law enforcement and uh, retired people, some of them. There are some medical examiners there, a lot of professionals that are looking into this new world of doing things on the Internet. You know, actually, rather than the world of a, just a, a group of detectives meeting in the room, you know, this is the whole planet. There's people from everywhere. And if a child actually goes missing in Australia, we can know about it within seconds here. We can crisscross the globe in minutes. I mean, there's obviously thousands of police agencies. And as Ted Bundy, the serial killer, said, police don't talk. That's how you get away with it. Police do not communicate. And unfortunately, that's true. And I'm a big proponent of talking and sharing information. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time we got to communicate more. We have to have shared databases. To me, that's a key. You know, central repositories where information comes in, missing persons, unidentified, homicides, are there trends, are there patterns, geographic patterns, you know. If you saw the file cabinets, there's drawers and drawers and drawers in over 10,000 leads that we've run down on this case. You can see from her necklace here what type of a necklace she was wearing. That turquoise necklace had three little birds on it, and she also had two keychains. And one keychain said, He who holds the key can open my heart. And the other was a key that fit in that corresponding slot. Our hope is someday on the internet, somebody will look at that and say, I know that child. It's one of our best chances. Someday we're going to solve this. Internet Sleuths was produced by Sarah Parker of Falling Tree Productions for BBC Radio 4. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. And now, the case of the missing male. We want feedback. You have opinions. Send us yours. Questions and comments, rants and raves, go to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Got no right to live. Him first, then the shadow. Molly, will you do as I say or must I? No, no, don't come near me. I find you much too emotional at the wrong time. Don't touch me. I'll put the gun in the office. Well, that's better. Everyone seems to be fascinated by crime, as long as it doesn't hit too close to home. Sue Mel is an independent producer in California who never expected to be writing about murder, police work, or amateur sleuths on the hunt. But when a close friend of hers was the victim of a brutal crime, she discovered the sheer frustration of a true crime without a true solution. Her story is called Girl Detectives. We're also helpless in the face of death and even more so in the face of an unsolved crime, of a murder. And women, women are always relegated to the role of providing comfort where really there isn't any to be had. We make phone calls, we make coffee, we hand out Kleenex, and we're advised over and over again not to antagonize the police. The police will find the answers. This, after all, is their job. 
It was a Monday night in January in the small town of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My friend Laura had stayed home with their two kids while her husband, Jay, had gone to see Gangs of New York, a movie that was much too violent for her taste. Midnight came and went. Jay still hadn't come home. At one, Laura started freaking out. She called her friend Susan, thinking maybe Jeff, Susan's husband, had gone to the movie with Jay, that they'd gone for drinks or something after. But Jeff was home asleep in bed. Susan got in her truck and drove to Laura's. By the time she got there, Laura had already called the police. This is Susan. They had kind of said, well, you know, if he doesn't show up by morning, we'll do something. Well, they kind of think, oh, well, husbands are supposed to stay out all night, not come home. You know, that's not unusual or something. Just sort of treat it like that. And, of course, they didn't know Jay. And, of course, we knew that that wasn't Jay to do that. Laura stayed home with her sleeping kids while Susan checked emergency rooms and drove around looking for Jay's car. By 3 a.m., Susan was freaking out, too, and she called her husband, Jeff. He met up with her back at Laura's. At the very last minute when we were leaving, Laura said, well, he was supposed to be at this theater. Go over and look at this other one. That's where we go sometimes. Just check it out. And so as Jeff and I were riding there, we were kind of joking. I said, yeah, like there's a triple feature on at 3 o'clock in Winston-Salem, you know, that he's still at the movie. I mean, we knew he wasn't at the movie. But the minute we turned in, um, I said, oh, my gosh, there's a car there. And Jeff went, oh, that's not Jay's car. I actually called Laura and said, does your car have a gold stripe? I'm kind of walking around the back. I had her on the phone. And I looked in the car and didn't see him. And Jeff went toward the theater. And uh, I went around to the passenger side of the car and opened the door. And Jay was, in fact, in the car. Not only was Jay in the car, but his body was crammed face down in the front seat. His wallet was missing, and his throat had been slit with a box cutter. And so, sort of standing there, and so I said, let me call you back. And the police got there, and um, Laura was calling me on the phone, going, what's going on, what's going on? I said, I'm calling you back. And of course she was freaking out. She knew I found the car by that time, but I didn't want to tell her over the phone what happened. So we talked with the police, you know, as briefly as we could, and we said, we'll come back, but look, (laughs) she's calling me. (laughs) You know, my phone's ringing here. It's wife. You know, I got to go over to her house because tell her. So we went and told her, and uh, that was really difficult. And then the whole investigation started, you know, before morning almost it seemed like you know the police were on it and so it was really a you know the worst night ever well we were just in such a state of shock to have a friend killed or dad the next you know you just wake up and here's this guy who's a great dad and our good friend dead you know and it wasn't a car wreck or anything we could wrap our arms around mm-hmm. the police were investigating and we went on with the funeral and we were busy making the arrangements and calling the friends and being at the house and doing all that stuff you do we were told like the next day or something that they wanted to talk to us because we were good friends and obviously they were going to want to talk to jeff and i and So we knew we would be, you know, talking to the police, and we really felt like they were 
you know, investigating. And they were quick on getting us over there. I mean, you know, we were over there within 24 or 48 hours after the death. So uh, we thought, well, surely they're going to come up with the, the answer. But in a police investigation, when the question is the death of someone you know and love, the answer they come up with might not be any answer at all. I've known Laura since I was five, and Jay was also one of my closest friends. I stayed with Laura and the kids for the first five weeks after Jay's death. We waited while the police conducted their investigation. Nobody really knows what happened, but the police, in the absence of a suspect or any evidence to prove otherwise, determined Jay's death to be a suicide. Their theory was that he killed himself and tried to make it look like a murder, that he slit his own throat so his family could collect the insurance money. Jay worked at home. He was a day trader. And like so many other people, he'd lost money in the market over the past couple of years. This, apparently, was the thing that captivated the police. To their way of thinking, this equaled motive. But no one that knew Jay believes he killed himself, for money or for any other reason. This is Stephanie, another friend of Laura's. And we really trusted the cops to check every nook and cranny, to ask all the questions, to find things that were missing. We just thought the cops would find our answer. By the time you're our age, you've had people who've died of suicides and heard about suicides. And it seems that, you know, in hindsight, you always go, oh, yeah, well, he was a little down, or, oh, yeah, you know. But with Jay, there was never anything like that. I mean, I had spent two weeks in France with him the summer before, and they came to dinner, you know, every other Sunday night or so. We'd eat dinner together, and there are warning flags that should be going off with friends and family. We didn't have that. The police, you know, I guess they've tried to dig up every little ounce of a you know, dirt they could find just to make their story work. But to the people that knew them, it's like, nah, you know, it just, it still doesn't, doesn't ring. There's not one fiber in my body that believes that he did himself in. That's an unacceptable answer to this. I can't make sense of that. nothing else, Jay would never leave his kids in that kind of a lurch. He was all about his kids. And so even if a thousand other things were wrong, he would not, that was not Jay. That his kids were his priority and he would not leave them. He would have never thought any, you know, thing good that could have come out of this, you know, if he killed himself. Yeah. You know, like I guess the police think the insurance money or, you know, something like you know, How could that be better than him being? You know, he would have never. He would have never made that. the jump that the kids could use the money instead of me. Right. Never. That would have not been an option for him. Yeah. And I guess, too, the thing that I thought was, hadn't been brought up in the story yet, is that Laura had cancer a couple years ago. And, uh, she had bone marrow transplant, for heaven's sakes. I mean, DEFCOM 1. And that was what kept coming to me. It's like, knowing that your wife had such a serious illness, how in the world would you do this? I mean, you were the one thing we were sure of. 
and that was the thing that I kept thinking is, no way. You know, he was the one that would have been there if something happened to Laura. It's, it's much neater to have Jay killing himself than Jay murdered at the nice side of town, at the movie, Absolutely. where we all go. This is like where they're building the mini mansions on this side of town, you know? <laughs> There's a, the myth that it's safe here, mm-hmm. and they don't want to blow that myth. I don't know that there is a really a good, clean, easy answer to why the cops just wrapped it up like that. The meat of this investigation was not right in front of us. It was other places, and we weren't thinking we need to go there because well, the cops aren't going to. You can't. Even, yeah, we didn't even think about it. We mm-hmm. didn't even. It yeah, never crossed my mind. But I think you're so wrapped up in the whole funeral, and you just somehow think that the police are going to figure it out and get the answer. And, you know, here we are having a funeral and we're just assuming that we're just going to grieve and then we're going to they're going to call us next week and get the answer but you know they didn't call us for a couple weeks the paper had said a suspicious death so we're still thinking well they're going to find who it is you know I mean we didn't know for how long that they had ruled suicide I mean they said in the initial thing suicide has not been ruled out of course we thought well there's no way they're going to rule suicide out as soon as they figure out the kind of person Jay is The problem with Jay's death was that there was a lack of evidence. There was nothing to definitively prove that he killed himself, but there was also nothing to prove that he didn't, except for the word of the people that knew him. But our word wasn't enough for the police to leave the case open or even just call it unsolved. Turned out our word wasn't worth squat. According to Laura's attorney, there was nothing she could do about the police. Their decision was a done deal. And because they declared Jay's death to be a suicide, his life insurance policy wouldn't pay out. Laura and her two kids were on their own. Her attorney suggested she try to sue the insurance company. But with the testimony of the police against her, he said her case was too weak for him to take on without money up front. He'd need $30,000. $15,000 to cover a private investigator and an outside medical examiner, and $15,000 for him. Laura didn't have $30,000, and even if she got it, would it be worth it? What if she lost? Suddenly, here she was, a single mom with two kids. She could certainly use the insurance money. But what she really wanted, what all the people that knew Jay wanted, was to know what really happened. The thing that we really wanted was the truth. Laura took an interim step. She spent $6,000 to see if it would even be worth going forward with a lawsuit. She paid $3,000 to her attorney and another three to an outside medical examiner in hopes that he could come up with a different scenario for Jay's death. He wouldn't get to see the body. Jay had already been cremated. But he would get to look at all the things that we were never allowed to see. The police report, the crime scene photos, the original medical examiner's report. But he wasn't going to be available for at least another month. In the meantime, something happened. Across the road from the parking lot where Jay was found is another little shopping complex with a grocery store. 
and there's an overpass, a sort of bridge, that goes over a creek that runs behind them both. Six weeks after Jay's body had been found, the newspaper reported that another body, a decomposed body, had turned up in that creek, literally less than 200 yards away. And it turned out that this guy had also died on the same night, in the same time frame, as Jay. What happened to this guy is he was run out of the Harris Teeter, which is the grocery store, accused of shoplifting. So, okay, he's shoplifting, yeah. or uh, accused of shoplifting, and he runs out as if he's guilty. He didn't say, oh, I don't have anything. And he ran behind the store, was the story, and his body was found in the creek, which runs behind this grocery store. Not one person that has put these two things together thinks that they're, it's a coincidence. People don't just drop dead. And uh, the second gentleman's death was ruled an accidental drowning. Yes, and we're like, and it, an act, you're, what is it, the devil's triangle over right, there? I mean, there were these on. things were happening all on the same night. And I actually, when we found out the date, this is what a snoop I am. We became really sort of sleuthy, you know, <laughs> as I pulled up on the computer the crime stats and found out when the police were called to the Harris Teeter. But I had to find out what time was this guy in the Harris Teeter? Was he there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Okay, that might have not been it, you know. But when I pulled up, it was like 7.15 that the police were called. I'm thinking, okay, now Jay was at, the, you know, left for the movie around yeah. 7. This is like starting to piece together a little more. Right. It wasn't a stretch to piece them together. No, we didn't have to use a whole lot of creative imagination we to like, piece them together. They fell together. This was like the clue. This and was now, like, here's something. And being the sleuth that I was and, you know, couldn't let the bone go, I immediately been shop, began shopping every day at the Harris Cheater and making friends with <laughs> the meat boy, the produce boy. That was so horrible about what happened. wonder what happened to that guy who, I didn't dare say, oh, my friend died the same night. You know, I just wanted to know what had happened with this guy. You know, what was the scoop? I actually called uh, Laura's attorney and said, look, did you put this together? Do you realize that this thing that's in the paper today is the day Jay died? And he went, well, you know, I saw it, but no, I hadn't. Well, that's interesting. And I said, well, I thought it was kind of interesting, too, you know. I mean, and I said, look, somebody needs to go down in that creek. What if he's the one that did something to Jay? What if the wallet's, because Jay's wallet is missing? We wanted to know what that guy had in his pockets, what he was yeah, wearing. We wondered if there was any evidence down in the creek, because here's this guy who's died on the same night. Is there anything? And how far did the police go to look? So... When I spoke to the attorney, um, he said, well, that is kind of interesting. I said, well, we need to do something. I mean, can you send, you know? He said, what we really need is to find the wallet. I said, okay, can we go find the wallet? He said, if you could find the wallet, now that would be a piece of information. I said, are you telling me I have permission to go find the wallet? Because it's a police case. We're trying not to... Overstep. We don't want to be accused of tampering with evidence or overstepping our bounds or whatnot. I mean, I don't want to, you know, get any closer to this than we really have to, but nobody was doing anything. The police had closed the case. The police obviously hadn't called Laura that morning and said, oh, well, we found another dead man the same night your husband died. You know, nothing that we know from a police standpoint had been done. So that's how we decided we were going to search the creek and see if we could find the wallet or something that would link it. I think one of the funny things is we were down there and uh, knowing that we were going to be looking, I decided to wear my um, 
big sweep t-shirt in case we look too suspicious because i've the big sweep is a a national waterway thing where we clean the creeks and i've been a captain for a long time and i thought it might be a good time while i was there just to look at the creek just in case you know so sure enough this guy comes out and goes what are you doing oh i was looking for big sweep because we didn't want to be suspicious you know we're back there like going back and forth you know we were snooping it's true (laughs) we're the only ones on this case okay the police have closed it and we are all she's got my husband calls it two moms on a mission how to solve a crime in three hours we're gonna we're gonna do it you know this is leading to another step in our life you know as soon as our children get out of the home we could become pis private investigators that's right but um we got down there and it was like a jungle and we we just spent about three hours down there i guess because i picked abigail up at 12 yeah once we got down there we 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 walked around everything and we found the wallet right a wallet right away. We found the wallet, and it was both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Now the wallet was embedded in sand, and we didn't touch it. You know, we just sort of freaked and went, "Oh my God, what are we going to do?" And didn't we call the attorney? We had we our cell phone. attorney, and we said, "How should we pick up this wallet?" Well, we said, "We've got the wallet. What do we do?" And he said, "Well, you need to pick it up." And we were freaking out no, about. He said, "Put it in the bag, so we had yeah. to drive back to my house. Yeah, and get, and get bags because we hadn't brought gloves. bags because we, we gathered police evidence. We had to gather police evidence, and we didn't have the right. We didn't have rubber gloves. Right. Remember, he said use rubber gloves, and you need bags, and you need to take pictures. So we. She, right. You got yeah. your video camera, and I had my camera because we didn't want. You know, what if it was his wallet, and we messed up the evidence, and we were really kind of bummed because I thought, well, dang, he should come down here Somebody and get this. Here. Well, here we are, tampering with evidence, or could be. You know, we didn't know it. We the could point. be planting evidence for all they knew. Yeah. So I mean, we were really, you know, worried that we didn't want to mess anything up. But he said, oh, no, they do it all the time. You just get gloves and you get a baggie and just pick the stuff up and bring it back to my office. Stephanie videotaped Susan picking up the wallet. She went to pick up her daughter, and Susan brought the wallet over to Laura's attorney. Then she went and got Laura. The wallet didn't turn out to be Jay's. And I don't know if that was good news or bad news. Like well, there was a sense of relief that it wasn't Jay's wallet, but I also wanted it to be Jay's wallet. Oh, I did too. I so wanted it to be Jay's wallet so they could say, okay, maybe this is connected, maybe and maybe connected. the police would like get back on it, you know, or something. But it wasn't. And then we haven't heard anything, you know? I mean, we sort of know, or as far as I think anybody knows, there is not one police officer in this county that's put one and one together. So there's nobody out here looking for the murderer, you know, or the guy that who done it. I mean, they've just said, okay, it's suicide, and that's it. Susan and I are looking for the killer. We need, we the, killer. need the killer. We need a killer because otherwise we've got Jay killed himself. It's either, you know, he did it or somebody did it. So that's the first frustrating thing for, you know, for me. It's like, it's our only case. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. They've closed the door on it. Yep. But we just can't quite... The police never acknowledged or considered any possibility of a connection between these two deaths. Jay's case remained closed. Jay died in January of 2003. When I interviewed Susan and Stephanie the following June, we were still waiting for the second medical examiner. We still had hopes that things might turn out differently for Laura, that we could somehow clear Jay's name. But the scenario that the second medical examiner came up with was the same as the first. Without Jay's body, without the crime scene, 
He couldn't come up with anything to suggest a different answer. How could he have? The thing that struck me the most about Susan and Stephanie's story is how women are still considered so helpless and how, when faced with this terrible situation, it wasn't so much that we couldn't do anything. It was that we were told over and over again that we shouldn't. I think of Susan acting all innocent and pumping the produce boy for information. I think of these two scrappy women down in the creek in the few short hours they had before it was time to pick up their kids, searching for their dead friend's wallet. And I wonder at the fact that at the same time women are supposed to be so helpless, they're expected to take care of their children, their husbands, their friends, to comfort us and soothe away our fears, to kiss us and make it all better. And how as women, the message most deeply ingrained in our heads is that whatever happens, we shouldn't make a fuss. Laura and I, Susan and Stephanie, we all danced politely with the police, with the attorney, while they waltzed us into an answer that we can't believe, that leaves us no recourse, that leaves Laura without a dime. And I guess the hard thing for a family going through that is that you're, you know, it was like we were so involved in the funeral, the people coming from out of town, and all the stuff, you know, within the, the immediate week after it, when we could have been down in the creek looking for the stuff, you know. We could have stumbled upon that body ourselves if we would have been down there. I feel like I wasted time at Lara's after Jay's death. I feel like, what was I doing sitting there, sitting around, doing nothing except trying to make someone feel better when there was nothing you could do to make her feel better? There was no way you can smooth it over. There's nothing you can say that makes it better. She probably doesn't even remember those 48 hours after mm-hmm. Jay's death. And I th- it's the first thing that I had to do was be there with Lara. But then I think I should have been at that parking lot. If the police stopped here, I should have been right on the other side of that yellow tape looking for something. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that the police are incompetent or anything, but gosh, what if they come up with the answer that you don't like, which they've done? Right. And then six months later, you're down the road and it's like, oh, that's it. Sorry. You, you know, can't ever go back. You can't go back. You need to be there and and be working it from the minute it happens. And I also think if if this type of thing ever happens to anyone I know ever again, I will handle it altogether differently. I will not be at the house brewing a pot of coffee. I will be down there probing and listening and watching and being a pain in the neck. When somebody dies, we do all these things to desperately try and gain control of the situation as if that were somehow possible. Susan and Stephanie went down into the ditch. I went back down to North Carolina with my tape deck in hand and asked them to tell me their story. But in the end, what do all the things we did or didn't do amount to? It's over a year since Jay died, and when I think about what happened, I still have that same helpless feeling that I could have done more that I should have done more, that whatever we did, it wasn't enough. And I miss him. Like Susan said, Jay was the one thing we were sure of.
We'll never know what really happened, or even if the police ever really tried to figure that out. It certainly doesn't seem to us like they did. And even if we could prove that the police didn't really do their job, what would that actually get us? Without evidence, evidence that in waiting and cooperating with them we missed our chance to get. We have nothing to argue Jay's innocence. Unlike the police, we never came up with an answer. We're still out here with questions, still searching for something to make it all better, having painfully learned we should always make a fuss. Sue Mel is a radio producer, stand-up comic, illustrator, photo stylist, and writer. For a link to her website, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from all over the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.